Welcome to Dilip Nigam Show. I'm a certified John Maxwell success coach, a motivational speaker, a writer, and an entrepreneur. In this program, we bring you up and close with global mentors you wish to you had. In season one of our show, we bring to you an opportunity to learn from mentors from Metro Vancouver, Canada, who had a dream, persevered through challenges, and accomplished a lot in their life, and are a source of inspiration to everyone. And today, our distinguished guest is Honorable Mr. Ujjal Dosanjh. Mr. Ujjal Dosanjh is a lawyer, an author, and a social activist. He is the former Attorney General of British Columbia, the former Minister of Health, and served as the 33rd Premier of British Columbia. In January 2003, Mr. Ujjal was awarded the Pravasi Bharti Samman, an Indian honor for expats, from Indian Prime Minister Atal Biyari Bajpayee in New Delhi. Welcome, Mr. Ujjal, on the Leap Nikam Show. Can I request you to start sharing a little bit about your early days in India as a child and a little bit about your family? I was born and raised um, in a village in Punjab. I was, uh, my birth is written incorrectly. I was born in 46, actually. Okay. Um, just before independence. Uh, and um, I spent the first five or six years in my village with my uh, parents and uh, my uh, Thaji and Thaiji. And, um, and then my nana took me, my grandfather took me to his village mm-hmm. and um, I went to school, um, elementary school, in a school that he had established uh, in abandoned premises of a Muslim family that had just gone to Pakistan. Okay. Um, and uh, that was his first year of, um, of that school, and I was number seven in the class, first mm-hmm. class of that school. So <laughs> right. I, I did my four years uh, primary school there. Um, and, uh, and then I came back to my village, the Sanjkala, um, and I went to school in grade five. Mm-hmm. And it was a school from grade five to ten. Um, and that was a school that had been established by my father in 1932 along with some other friends. So I, I did my grade 10 from there. From there I went to college, um, Rangadia College uh, at Fagwada, which is about four miles away from my village. I used to bike there every day and back and that was when my father bought me my first bike. I thought it was a Porsche, <laughs> 138 rupees wow. and all, right? Wow. My mom had passed away when I was in grade two. Oh, okay. So my Taiji um, brought us up and, and one of our cousins. And uh, my older brother and I have two sisters, so there are four of us. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and then, as I was at college, I um, really wanted to do medicine. My father wanted me to do medicine, but he then changed his mind at the last minute. So I had some disagreements because I wanted to go to a different college. I wanted to switch to arts, um, humanities, and I knew he didn't have the money. Um, okay. You know, we were he we had no salary coming anymore because he had retired. And five acres don't support um, too many students in expensive colleges. Mm-hmm. And so we were a family of about 12 or 13 people, extended family. Um, so I um, escaped to England, just luckily. I started working, I you know, shunted trains, uh, goods trains uh, in, in England, um, made crayons in a crayon factory. 
um, was a lab assistant at a high school, worked in a car parts factory. So I, uh, you know, went to night school as mm -hmm. I was working during the days. I did a couple of O-levels privately. Uh, then I tried to get admission in a university, and one of the newer universities actually agreed to grant me admission in a combined law and politics degree, mm -hmm. provided I did British history O level. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I came back and I looked at British history O level uh, a syllabus, and I couldn't tell one King George from another, one Queen Elizabeth from another. <laughs> So I, so I decided this wasn't, wasn't this wasn't my cup of tea. Okay. Uh, it was too boring a history for me. I knew uh, the constitutional history of Britain, but but to actual history of Britain about all the kings and queens, uh, I you know wasn't wasn't interested. And so I was looking for a way out. I happened to be in London uh, helping edit and print and publish this newspaper. I happened to be on, on one of my trips to, London, to, to on, on the underground, and I'd be walking by Trafalgar Square. Canadian High Commission office happened to be right in my sight. Okay. And I just, on a whim, went into it, you know, decided that perhaps I should ask the Canadian High Commission whether I could go, go to Canada. And at that time, they must have been looking for immigrants because I wasn't anything special. They said, oh, sure, fill out the application. And I filled out the application right there and then. Okay. And they said, um, if what you say is true and you bring us the documents and your passport, uh, you know, uh, we've provisionally approved your application and here's the medical right. requisition. Go get your medical and bring us the documents. And I did in a couple of weeks. I came back and they stamped approval. So I came here in 1968. Now, you moved from India at a very young age to England. And from there, you took a very bold step of moving back to moving to Canada within four years of landing in London. So how did you gather that courage? Were you having those inhibitions in your mind that, oh, new country, I have not got enough education yet. How would I manage myself? So how did you overcome those kind of fears, initial fears, which people have? You know, I, I actually never experienced those okay. uh, in the sense that, not, I mean, you know, I did uh, experience strangeness, right? I okay. mean, I came into a strange culture, strange okay. language. Mm -hmm. uh, when I landed at the airport, one face looked like another. You know, when you go to a different country people look yep. the same for a yep. while yep. and then you begin to figure out who is who and um, but it was it was an amazing transformation I as I landed I got my training on board uh, the Australian Airlines the Quintus mm -hmm. that was the plane I took from India okay uh, and and uh, there were two professors sitting in front of me one Indian one English ethnically but they were both from University of London. Okay. And they were f coming back from a, a conference in Australia or a sabbatical of, so of sorts. And, you know, they, they realized that I was new. I had never been on a plane before. I'd never even seen one before. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and they kind of just embraced me and taught me how to use the, the, the sit-down toilet that I'd never seen before. Okay. How to use a fork and a knife uh, that I had never seen before. Forget, forget using it. Okay. Um, so, as I landed at the London airport, um, 
I didn't know if a, 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 a plain load of Indians coming for the same school had been turned away. I was in between two professors from London University and the, and the chap looks at me and asks me why are you here and I said for higher education. I knew enough, my, my language was good. And as I landed, you know, this is, this is about experience, as I landed at London Airport, I see janitors, men and women, in light blue uniforms right. with ties on okay. and sweeping. And I sort of looked at them and I said, you know, coming from a very class-conscious country, India is a very class-conscious country, True. very color-conscious, yep. very class-conscious. Yep. It was then, it still is, yep. maybe less so, but still is. Yep. So coming from there, I looked at these people, they were wearing ties and suits, that's what they looked like, mm -hmm. and they were, they were janitors. And I said to myself, like from that day on, all of the complexes some of us grow up with yep. in in societies like India, right? You know, class consciousness, yep. inferiority yep. complex, and all that, they just totally yes. evaporated. evaporated. It just in that one instant yep. that you know, what's a tie and a suit? What are clothes? Yep. Need you need to cover yourself properly. They should be clean. Other than that, they don't have much value, yeah, right? right? So ultimately, that one experience of having met those professors who treated me like a real adult, yep. like, like someone who was of their caliber, they didn't treat me like a child. Okay. And, and those janitors taught me a lesson in equality. And I, and I, from then on, I never looked back. I mean, I had the usual problems of not being able to find a job, right. not being able to understand <laughs> language. Uh, you know, having to learn the accent. Right. And I found a way of doing that. And, and that was, I was already politically very conscious and interested. So I would read newspapers, I'd go to the library on the weekend um, with my cousin buying groceries and I would go to two libraries, county and public, and bring books that I wanted to read for the wow. week and listen to BBC debates. I never listened to it, much music. Um, just BBC debates. There was there was radio called BBC One, just like CBC here. Yep. It had no commercials. Okay. Then, mm -hmm. CBC came to it much later after I came to Canada. Right. But BBC One had no commercials. Right. Debates, conversations, interviews, dialogue, Security Council debates, any conferences. Wow. That's all they had, and so I would, I would be reading, if I didn't understand a word or I didn't know how to pronounce it, then I'd hear it. Right. And I said, wow. It was like a discovery with each new word. Wow. The meaning became clearer, the, the pronunciation became clearer. Wow. So I never actually took an English course wow. to learn to speak English in England or in Canada. Yeah. I sort of self-taught myself. You have been writing poems from a very young age and I understand your father didn't like it so much <laughs> but that passion continues and it turned into you putting together a book and which is called A Journey After Midnight. So would you share the motivation behind a little bit about that? Well, you know, um, my father died in 1980 um, and my nana died in 1982. And I never really sat with them for 
any length of time to record their history. They had a very interesting history. I've been trying to piece it together. There was a small book written on my Nanna's life uh, back in India in Punjabi. I've been reading that and other sources. Um, and I, I was hungry for information. And I realized that, that, you know, if you don't put your history together, if you don't write your own history, nobody else is going to write your history. That's right. um, and it is important for your children and your grandchildren to know, that. to know, because they might wonder one day, like I wonder sometimes now about my ancestors, right. uh, they might wonder one day, what happened to his life? Like, how did yeah. he become who he was? Or was he good, bad, or ugly, whatever? And so I decided that, that I wanted to do that. That was the main motivation. Okay. The other motivation was that, you know, it, when people write history, they write it from a particular point of view. Yeah. I wanted to write my history of political involvement from my point of view. Right. So that it is established what I think, what yep. I know. Yep. And, you know, others will have their view. Yep. They have it now. They have it. Hello. They'll have it once I'm gone. It matters not. But I wanted to make sure that at least it was clear as to what I thought, why I did what yep. I did. Why you did. Absolutely, you know, I and mean, that's a very good motive that, you know, publishing your memoirs, your life journey, and even your family's background, that's a great, and I do have that thought in my mind too. <laughs> coming forward, I'll that's important. that, yeah. The word change, it's the hardest thing to adapt, you know, accept change. I moved from India to Singapore and Singapore to uh, Vancouver, and it always required a change. And I'm sure in your journey also, you had to embrace a lot of change while moving from India to London and then from there to Canada. So what would your advice be to the people that, okay, how do they embrace change? What should be the attitude towards change? Well, I think that, that first of all, it, it's important to understand why you move. Um, I moved for economic reasons and other reasons. And moving is always painful. Yeah. Change is just like moving. Yeah. It's painful too. But it also has positive rewards for you, you once you've been able to accomplish the change in yourself. Yeah. Um, I've never been rigid about anything in life. I've always looked at um, the circumstances I'm in and one thing I always say is that what is important in life is that you come upon opportunities to make decisions, right. make choices <clears throat> every day in life. Some are minor choices, are. like, you know, what kind of bed you want to buy or you know, what kind of food you want to eat. Those are unimportant choices. Yep. Guys, right? But then there are other important choices. Right. Um, what do you do if there is a political movement happening in your neighborhood? If there are serious issues that are that the community is grappling with, what do you do? You stand apart, mm -hmm. or you try and understand them. And then once you understand them, what choices do you make? Do you make in terms of changing or not changing? Right. And if changing situation, in what direction? You know, th there were people running around in Vancouver who said that if I had run with the NDP, they would lose ten seats, and and he's finished. The Sanjay's dead. 
because I hadn't run since 84, 85. And I said to, I said to Romy one day, I said, you know, I don't particularly want to run. You know, I was making a quarter million dollars a year as a lawyer at that time, in 1989-90. But I said, you know, money is not important. Like, I want to be someone who can affect change. But if the perception is that I'm dead, how can I affect change? Yeah. Right? So I had to kind of basically say, you know, I'm going to run again. Run, run again. So that's how I made that decision. You make choices. Similarly, I made the choice in '84. I could have remained quiet. I would have been popular. Yep. I, everybody would have loved me, right? I would have had no enemies. But then I would have had no real friends either. Absolutely. In 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 society, if you want to change something, you know they say, if you have no enemies, yep. you friends. you have no real friends. No real friends too. <laughs> yep. Life is always like up and down. You always have ups and downs. Absolutely. So sometimes you have very tough moments in life. And if you want to revisit your life journey, if you recall, what was the toughest moment of your life and how did you overcome that? My wife told me, I asked, I asked her that question. My wife told me that it was probably deciding to marry her. She's a tough woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, but, you know, on a more serious note, I think that, I think the toughest moment of my life, um, you know, was when I left India. Okay. Um, because I was very attached to India. I'm still very attached to India. Like Others are too, but I, I think I am. Uh, particularly attached mm -hmm. because I had I had learned the history of India the movement independence movement my own family's participation in it I had dreams and aspirations for the country and then then I left for many reasons and I to date I remember vividly how hard I cried as I got on the train at Fogorda to go to Delhi okay. that was the first time I went to Delhi I'd never been to Delhi before okay. and so that was the toughest decision um, of my young life at that time. Um, you know, there's no one tough decision. I yep. mean, I, I, you know, I um, deciding to run in '91 was a yep. tough decision. Was a tough decision. Um, deciding to speak out in '84, I knew it wasn't going to be a popular decision. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people weren't going to. Most people or many people were going to disagree with me and get angry at me. But I had to make a choice. I had to be true to myself. Right. So toughest part of one's life is being true to your inner yeah. voice. John Maxwell talks about failing forward to succeed. It means failure is a part of success journey. When you fail, get up, learn from it, and move on. If you recall your life journey, what was your most favorite failure? And what were the lessons learned from it? I flunked chemistry in, in pre-university. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was because I hated sciences by then, as I told you. Mm -hmm. um, and... But, but I also knew that 
unless I passed the exam, I wouldn't be able to move forward. Right. So that failure taught me that if I don't try harder, failure would stand in my way. Mm -hmm. My life wouldn't move forward. That's one lesson. It's like try, try again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't, yep. they say try, 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 try again. It's not for nothing they say that. Yep. That is the essence of life. Try, try again. Try, try again. If you recall the most memorable day of your success journey, what would that be? I mean, ordinarily people might say, when I became an MLA, or yep, yep. blah, 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 you know, um, or when I became the premier. Yep. I, you know, I, I don't know whether those are, I mean, those are important days. Don't sure. misunderstand me. Sure. Uh, I'm not belittling them. No, no. The most memorable day is when my grandfather, at the age of eight, I was in grade two, after my mom's death, stood me up at a public function in my mom's village and gave me a peace poem to read. Used to publish Soviet in, those, in Soviet days. Soviet Russia used to publish in Punjabi. It's a beautiful Punjabi poem about peace wow. in the world. And my nana said, you got to read it. You got to read it. And I was a shy kid. I used to stutter a little mm -hmm. when I was young. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my nana said, um, you're afraid. I said, yeah, I'm afraid. He said, not that, not that it was true, but his way of impressing upon me a way of reading the poetry without worrying about others. He said, just think they're blind, they're deaf, and they're dumb. Okay. <clears throat> the world is yours. Mm -hmm. You're in control. Just speak. Yep. And I think that one moment gave me the courage <clears throat> to speak out okay. all my life. If you have to su summarize three success mantras, what would that be? I mean, there are hard, it, it's hard to summarize life in, in three, three mantras true, or ten true. mantras. But in public life, uh, I guess it might be different in private life, but in public life, um, it's very similar to private life. One should, uh, when you're confronted with a problem, study the issue. Assess all the circumstances. Make the right choice. Right. And be <clears throat> courageous. Right. You know, when I was writing my, uh, my autobiography, I had written three or four words um, on a notebook and had them in front of me. It basically said, truth, boldness, and integrity. That I wanted to write the book with those three principles in mind. Okay. Writing a book is like going through life. Truth, boldness, and integrity. A lot of people have mentors in life. Now, did you have a mentor in life? And if yes, uh, uh, in what well, way he influenced your life? Well, you know, I had a, I, I have had the 
um, privilege of being raised by a very good, honest, ethical father mm-hmm. and family, and and um, nurtured politically and otherwise by him and my uh, nana. So my two idols were my uh, my father and my nana, my heroes. Uh, beyond that, my heroes were people who essentially fought for the Indians and for India's independence. And Mahatma Gandhi was has always been one of my heroes. I came to him late in life. <coughs> came to him him in my in my late twenties. Um, that was when I first read his um, autobiography in full, My Experiments mm-hmm. with Truth. Yep. And uh, I've been a devotee ever since. I think he was a great human being, um, as good a mentor okay. uh, as any in the world. Okay. Uh, if I had to say the word successful, what's the first name that comes to your mind? Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, I could connect the dots there. Gratitude is one of the biggest virtues of life. Now, if we had to thank three people in your life, who would they be? I'll answer the question, but not, not the way you asked. Sure. And not necessarily in this order either. Sure, sure. My wife, my extended family, mm. and my friends. Awesome. Very nice. They all contributed to your success journey. If you had to give one lesson for the future generation, what would that be? You know, when you look at a problem, you look at the world, be courageous. Change needs courage. If you want change, you got to be courageous. Fantastic. And hold tight to it. Yeah, hold tight to the principle. Thanks to our special guest, Honorable Mr. Ujjal Dostanj. I'm sure you got inspired by Mr. Ujjal's story and are ready to redefine yourself to be the hero of your own story. If you found this episode valuable, please hit the like button, subscribe to my channel, and post in the comment section on my Facebook page one key takeaway from Mr. Ujjal's success journey which you would like to implement in your own life. You would agree that challenges are a part of life and COVID-19 pandemic during 2020 was one such challenge that disrupted the financial stability of many professionals and entrepreneurs. In my next podcast, I would like to present a few perspectives on how to reinvent yourself and thrive in the post-COVID era. And I'm sure you would find it valuable. Till then, stay tuned, stay inspired.